Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be going to a different book in uh, the Bible, in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, which is supposedly written by Solomon. Uh, at least that's the theory that most people accept. It may have had a pre-existence, but uh, basically, it is right after Proverbs and is written to some degree a little bit like Proverbs, trying to give advice. And it brings up a number of things. It, there is a individual in it that is called preacher, teacher, uh, based on a word, koholet, uh, which is kufhe lamad tav. And uh, it's the kind of the 24th book of the Tanakh uh, in many of the Bibles. Uh this word koholeth is uh, supposedly, according to many, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. But there are other theories that it actually is representing an inner revelation teacher, a spiritual teacher that is trying to tell everybody the truth all the time. I just... Uh, dated our uh, webpage on uh, meditation. And there's a great deal in the Old Testament about meditation and Exodus they're talking about that. And I brought it up several times in our Exodus study where Moses is going to consult God. Now, how does he go to consult God? Does he run out to the burning bush? Does he go over and talk to the pillar of fire and the and smoke? that uh, is following them around because he does go and talk to somebody that seems to be inside the pillar of fire or the pillar of smoke by day. But uh, this consulting with God where God's telling him what's going to happen, what he needs to say, what he needs to do, what comes next, which way to go, uh, how is he doing that? And of course there are hints in Exodus, there's hints in Deuteronomy as to what that is all about. And it's, it's a meditative state of mind where you wait upon the Lord and you quiet your own ambitions, your own desires, your own um, passions, and you wait upon the Lord. What does the Lord, what this this divine spark, this revelation have 
for you to do or to think or to understand or to say or whatever. And this seemed to be what Moses was doing, but the exact mechanism is clouded in symbolism. You know, and we see the Jews have a ritual where they wrap a leather thong around one arm and it goes up to their head and it wraps around their head and they put a little box on their forehead and they put a scripture inside the box and they hold one end of the leather thong and the other end is attached to the leather box on their forehead. Of course, that's all just symbolism and if you start doing the ritual of the symbolism rather than what it represents, you're probably not really meditating. But that is what meditation is. It has something to do with uh, waiting upon the Lord to give you an answer to a question. And you're aware of like your right hand or your left hand or both hands at the same time and you're aware of what is passing before your mind, in your mind. Once you understand what that meditation is, and then you go through a book as cryptic as Ecclesiastes, uh, you may begin to understand who the teacher really is. And it's not Solomon. It's this divine revelation that each of us must have. Like I've I've said a number of times recently that... Yes, the Bible is a the revealed word of God, but you will not understand it unless the re, the revelator is in your heart and in your mind because that's how you're able to interpret what is written in the text. If you simply try to interpret it based on your own knowledge, you know, your endless studying of scripture, of language, etc., then you're eating of the tree of knowledge and you cannot find the tree of life by eating of the tree of knowledge. In fact, it is a poor substitute. So anyway, this koholet, which actually literally means a gatherer uh, and traditionally is translated teacher or preacher, is uh, a pseudonym used by the author of the book. Now, if the book is the product of revelation, then the author of the book is not the person who actually pins it, which may have been Solomon, but the revelator, the the source of the revelation, this this Spirit of God breathing upon us. And in the course of putting together this, the, my notes for this program, which you can find at Preparing You, and will be on each page, and we'll upgrade them as we go through the different chapters. Uh, I point out that there's an old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. It's attributed to uh, Chinese, to Tao Ching, and uh, Buddha, and Theosophists, and... Uh, but it is basically saying that when you are willing to hear the truth and waiting to hear the truth and set aside your own ambitions, your own desires, your own passions, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. But the truth is not information. It is not 
It is not something you can memorize. It's not something you can put in a bottle or a book or anything. The truth is what is. And our perception of the truth is dependent upon the humility of our heart because we will only have eyes to see and ears to hear when God gives them to us. When the Creator gives them to us. Because basically we're, as we'll see in Ecclesiastes, we're beasts. We're animals. But within each of us is a divine spark. And we're either paying attention to the divine spark or we're paying attention to our animal nature. Or or maybe we're paying attention to all the other people who would have us do their will. And of course, that's exactly what happens to us. We become subject to the will of others when we try to make others subject to our own will. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. We will see this repeated over and over again in Ecclesiastes, just as we saw it in Exodus. And, and we see, certainly see it in the New Testament. Because as you judge, so shall ye be judged. This is part of uh, the basic understanding of the cause and effect universe created by God. So anyway, uh, the book was, according to some people, the book was written around 450 or 180 B.C., which of course puts it way out of the range of Solomon. But then again, you know, that is supposition on the part of theologians and archaeologists who, because they, we don't have copies, you know, we don't have an actual handwritten copy by Solomon himself. So there's a lot of people with uh, letters after their name that are making these conjectures that, well, it was probably only written. It may have been altered slightly. It's not one of the books of Moses. Uh, and there is some confusion as to exactly uh, who who wrote it. But it, we can easily attribute it to Solomon. Solomon was a unique character. I mean, he was supposed to be so wise. And there's a great deal of talk about wisdom in in this book. As well as, I, actually the book that mentions wisdom, I think, more than any other book is Proverbs which also mentions women more than any other book. But it is very symbolic in imparting to us what is a fool. It mentions fool a great deal of the time and wisdom a great deal of the time. When we look at Ecclesiastes, we'll we'll find a number of uh, phrases that uh, appear in uh, different quotes or people think are in quotes that are... Not actually even in the Bible, but they uh, put them together. And there's one fellow uh, novelist, Thomas Wolfe, who said, uh, Of all I have ever seen or learned, that book seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon earth. And also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I am not given to dogmatic judgment in the matter of literary creations, but if I had to make one, 
I could say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. But, that being said, I don't think most people who have similar opinions of Ecclesiastes actually understand what he is talking about. And in in the book. And one of the phrases that we will explore is the sacrifice of fools. There is something referred to as the sacrifice of fools. Now, actually, the sacrifice of fools is referred to in the New Testament, but they don't call it the sacrifice of fools. They call it the Corban of the Pharisees. And Corban is simply the Hebrew word for sacrifice or free will offering. Normally, meaning free will offering, but it means specifically sacrifice. It comes from a word that means to draw near. And this was the whole purpose of building the altars. You know, we weren't just going to be meditating on the top of a mountain somewhere, but they, we actually built altars where people made sacrifices on those altars. Those altars were sometimes at what we would call the house of God. And you would make these sacrifices on these altars. And that was, and this is what is just astounding that most people don't get. Nobody was piling up stones to burn up sheep. Or to burn up your olive oil. Or to burn up whatever it was that you made. Whatever fruits of the field that you produced. The first fruits. That was one of the first things that would go to the altars. It's the first fruits. You have to take these first fruits there and go burn them up because they're a burnt offering. Well, this has created one of the strongest delusions in the history of mankind is that they don't understand and listening to going through our entire study of Exodus and listening to Jordan Peterson and uh, who makes comments now on our webpage on meditation uh, because he talks about meditation, and I thought his words were very close. You know, this is what I was seeing in their study of Exodus. Many of the things they say are very close, and get sometimes closer to the truth than what you will hear in your modern churches. But still, close only counts in horseshoes. You've got to get closer than close. If you're going to know the whole truth, you got to know the whole truth. And so I, I put up that video, but I, the only way that you can find the whole truth is that you listen to that teacher, that preacher of revelation in your heart and in your mind. Otherwise, you're just picking branches and leaves off of the tree of knowledge and you will not get the full picture. So we're going to look at this, uh, one of the things that Solomon did that did come up in our study on Exodus was that he created a corvée. Uh, it was mentioned by Oz in, on the panel. And everybody just briefly passed over. They, they were getting so close that Solomon was creating a corvée. Well, the bondage of Egypt was a corvée where a portion of your labor belonged to the state. 20% of your labor belonged to the state And that was the bondage of Egypt. You had property, but you only had legal title to the property. I mean, you didn't own your sheep, 
but you had a legal title to your sheep because the Pharaoh wasn't going to hurt them. So he gave the sheep back to the people. You take care of them. They belong to me, but you take care of them. And a portion of what you produce, 20% of what you produce with those sheep is going to go to me. 20% of what you grow in your grain fields is going to go to me. 20% of your sweat and blood and toil uh, of your life is going to go to me. Because you didn't have provisions and I gave you provisions and I made a covenant with you that a portion of your labor is now going to belong to the government of Pharaoh. That's the bondage of Egypt. Do you know any place in the world where there is a similar system set up? You can think about that. That's your assignment for this week. To think about that. Is there any... Because wherever you find that corvée, you find the bondage of Egypt. And you are now a captive. Not 100% a captive, but 100% of your labor is portioned out. A percentage of it goes to the state, to the Pharaoh, to Caesar, to Herod, to whoever. And that is the bondage of Egypt. So if you know any place that something like that exists, those people are back in the bondage of Egypt. Those people are back in the captivity that we were never to return to according to Moses, according to the song of Moses. And that's another topic that we're going to get into because if you're going to know the song of Moses, you're going to have to know what the sacrifice of fools is. So anyway, let's just go ahead and get right into uh, it. We have a few minutes before the break. And so we'll, the very first line of uh, chapter 1 begins with the words of the preacher. And it says, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, again, remember they're saying that this book was written like a couple hundred years before Christ, not by Solomon. So, is... The preacher, the actual son of David, Solomon, the king of Jerusalem, or is the preacher, and as we go through this, we're going to see, the preacher is this source of revelation. And he is just receiving that revelation and passing it on through this writing. So the real preacher is not Solomon. The real preacher-teacher is this Holy Spirit, this divine revelation. Jesus was called a teacher in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. They reference a teacher over and over again. They don't name him, but they refer to the teacher. And I'm, I'm saying that this teacher is not just Jesus or Solomon, but it is Christ. And the word Christ means anointing. And that anointing is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of God that is anointing, can anoint everybody individually. And that is the teacher that you are looking to listen to. Abraham, Moses, and Jesus listened to that teacher. And so what they said was from that teacher or preacher. And what they were trying to teach you is the way of God and His righteousness. 
the altars of Abraham were teaching you the way of righteousness. The altars of Moses, the, you know, the Jehovah Nisi altar that he built after that battle. This was, these were systems of sacrifice to take care of the needy of society. The alternative to that is the corvée or bondage of Egypt where you have to give a sacrifice and that sacrifice is there for your welfare. That's your social safety net. But Christ wanted you, Moses wanted you, Abraham wanted you to create altars of free will offerings. That was one of the very first things that Moses was saying in Exodus that all the offerings that come to these altars to the house of God must be free will offerings by the consent of the individual, by choice. Not a result of a vow, not the result of a promise or an oath, but the result of daily choice. Because when you don't have that daily choice, you become a person, a thing, an instrument. And Peter says you become merchandise. And so there is something that tempts us to go that route. And this these books are going to be telling us not to go that route. And he's going to talk about vanities of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now they... All those words are are basically the same word, which is habel. It's not the only word that is translated vanity, and we will take a little bit of time to look at a lot of other words that are translated vanity. But habel, and it will appear a number of different ways in the text, but that habel, it it is translated vanity of vanities, and we see it. Sometimes they add uh, a yod and a mem on the back of the word that we see there as habel, which is, hey, be it lamad. Be it meaning house, uh, lamad meaning your hand, yod meaning the divine spark, mem meaning the flowing of something. So when we look at that word, habel, uh, it is actually defined as vapor or breath. Well, you can't see your breath. And to some degree, you can't see vapor. It, it, it's cloudy. It's not really visible. But there, that's what it means. But we're seeing the word vanity there. Now, there are other words, like I say, that are translated vanity. And we will look at some of those. But that particular word, habel, has to do with breath with something you can't see air that is around you I mean I can wave my hand and you can feel the air brushing against my cheek but I can't see it I can feel I know it's there you can put it in a balloon and you can blow up the balloon so you know there's air but you can't see it so this vanity is things that we can't see it's related the idea of saying all is vanity is saying that all is something that we cannot see. We, we cannot perceive. And uh, now there are other words that will be translated vanity. And we'll, we will look at those when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. 
But this is this whole book and chapter is centered around this idea of what is vanity. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So this idea of of vanities of vanities, all is vanities. Well, when we see the word there in the, the text of all is vanities, there actually isn't the word all <laughs> in the text. But they're they're listing off vanity of vanities, Habel of Habel. All these vanities of vanities are vanities. So it's a rather redundant statement, but it's important to understand that uh, he's talking about this, this, these things that we sometimes think of as so valuable are not necessarily valuable at all. They're only valuable in our thinking that actually are not things that give us life. And so this is what the teacher that is teaching him and he is passing on down to us is trying to let us know. So now he's going to go through a long list of what what profit has a man from all his labors in which he toils under the sun. And we're going to see this phrase under the sun numerous times and it's uh, uh, Shemesh is the word that we see there. And 119 times it's translated sun or uh, but also it can be translated windows. Uh, it, it refers to something uh, that can invoke the idea of worship. And uh, it, it's something that's done in the light of day. It, you know, that, we have that phrase. It, shedding light on something. Something exposed. Something that is visible. And of course, we just talked about the vanities, our breath, that are not visible. You can have all the light you want, but you still can't see breath. You can't see the vanities. And a lot of what they're trying to impart to you in, in this, in this, these chapters is that what we see and what we don't see. But he goes on and talks about the, uh, the different, you know, uh, generations. One generation passes away, another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. In other words, it goes, it goes down, but then it comes around the, again, it comes back up again. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. They see patterns. And everything is, what's going around is coming around and all the rivers run to the sea and the sea is not full until the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. You know, rains go up, snows go up, then the rivers come back down and go back to the sea. And so the, he's talking about, basically he's 
saying in a kind of poetic fashion that we live in a universe of cause and effect. We see the cause. We see the effect. We see this repeated over and over again. The things that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. And and he repeats this idea a few more times throughout the text because he's saying that there is a pattern to all this. You know, history repeats itself. That's a that's a phrase that is saying the same thing. The things that hath been shall be again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You hear something, you want to hear it again. You see something, you may want to see it again. Everything is repeating itself. But he says, there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of the things that are to come with those that shall come after. So he's saying we forget. We forget what we've learned. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing new un, un, under the heaven. Everything that has been before will be again. But we don't always remember that. And of course we have the sayings that, you know, why do you study history? Because history repeats itself. And it will give you some insight. You know, like I say, learn two ways to learn things. Easy or hard. You will learn it by seeing other people's mistakes. Whether they are next to you or they are somebody in the past. Or you will make the same mistakes. And of course, he's going to be talking about a mistake that we keep making. You know, the dog returns to his vomit, the pig to his mire, because they keep going back and repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Because they have no remembrance. They will forget. And they'll go back. Only when God writes upon your heart and your mind will you know we should not go that way. Only when God is guiding your steps. And we'll get to that in, I think it's chapter 5. You know, who is guiding your steps? So in verse 12, he says, The preacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Again, is the king the, the king? Or is the preacher the king? Is the preacher that source of revelation where God is writing upon your hearts? That's what we want to be in our leaders. Is God writing upon the hearts and minds of the people? And upon their leaders. And their leaders should not be rulers. Because each man should be ruled by the preacher in his own heart. And how do we know what preacher is preaching in his heart? By what he does. And these chapters will address that as well. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore Travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised with. And that word exercised, you know, I talk about it over here in the the side panel. I think I do somewhere, I think. Uh, Maybe I do it in the next chapter because it comes up again. But um, 
I will put it here on this page. I've got several more places to put things. But this exercise has to do with getting something out. Um, you know, that we get vanities, we get ideas in our mind. How do we get them out? Uh, somebody was talking, uh, and I, I went and explored what they were talking about. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a, uh, alcoholics were having trouble and they had this special program to help alcoholics so that they don't go back to drinking again because if, once you become an alcoholic, it can all actually alter your mind so that if you just take one drink, you, all of a sudden you go back on a bender. And so I, I, somebody mentioned something, I went to explore it. Well, I found out it's a drug. And if you take that drug, you will have less cravings. Well, you can certainly do that. But what you really want is God to heal your mind <laughs> and to deal with the, these patterns that are engraved in your mind. And, of course, in this this book, they're talking about how certain patterns of thinking you will begin to repeat over and over again. Everything is repeated over and over again. If you do go this way, you will repeat it over and over again. And you will end up in a cycle. Like the, the rivers to the sea. But they will not fill the sea. And all these things, the vanity of vanities, will not satisfy the heart. Will not fill the heart. But he talks about, you know, the wisdom of his heart. And of course now sometimes wisdom is spelled differently. They add extra letters. But there are different wisdoms out there. There's the wisdom uh, of your mind and there's the wisdom of your heart and there's the wisdom of the preacher. There's the wisdom of God. And you can't get the wisdom of God by eating of the tree of knowledge. He talks about wisdom and knowledge in verse 16. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. That's his heart. You don't, you never have the heart of God. You can have the heart of God writing upon your heart. The heart of the preacher writing upon your heart. But you don't, your heart needs to belong to God. So that he can write upon your heart. Your ambition, if you're going by your ambition, your desire, what your heart desires, your heart is a beast heart. It's an animal heart. And it's influenced by all those things round about you. You know, evil can come up and poke you and turn your heart to anger. And somebody can come up and show you something and turns your heart to lust. Because it's a self-satisfying heart. In order to break that, you don't need a chemical castration of that animal heart. You need to have your heart filled with the breath of God. Not your own breath, but the breath of God. Your breath is what? Vanity of vanities. Hebel. Breath. 
Your breath is vanity of vanities, but God's breath is life everlasting. So how do you get God's breath in you? How do you get His Spirit in you? Well, of course, you probably want to get close. <laughs> so, that, and, and of course, I'm using that because the word is going to come up. Karab has to do with drawing near. We'll see that in chapters 4 and 5. But he's setting the scene here. All his vanities. Everything repeats itself. If you go down the wrong way, you'll go down the wrong way again because you never remember. You have no memory of all the mistakes that you can make. You need the teacher to tell you because the teacher has true wisdom. So he says, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He'll talk about this madness again and certainly he will talk about this folly, this foolishness. I perceive that this also is a vexation of spirit. Now, this word vexation of spirit will come up numerous times and we'll take a look at that, what those words actually mean. But he's going to tell you all the bad stuff in the first few chapters and approach it in different chapters from a different point of view. But it comes down to, is it your heart or God's heart? For in much wisdom is much grief. He that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. So, he will later tell us that sorrow is a good thing. As a matter of fact, it's better, sorrow is better than pleasure. But, in this case, he's talking about increasing knowledge increases sorrow. But he's talking about eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil rather than eating of the tree of life. Now, if you eat of the tree of life, you will know God. If you eat of the tree of knowledge, you may try to become God. <laughs> you become the ruler. You will become the source of your own wisdom. And, of course, that is the vanity of vanities. And that will lead you to madness and folly. So, some of the, the words that we, you know, when it talks about the form uh, of the word labor is in verse 3, is translated uh, mischief if you go read Psalms 7.16. His mischief shall return. That's the same form that we see with the word labor in verse 3 when he's talking about that a man's labor does not profit him. You could you could probably put the word mischief there. That a man in all his mischief does not profit him. And this will make more sense too when we see what the sacrifice of the fools are. Because the sacrifice of the fool is mischief. It is counted as evil. It is, it is this... Um, Mischief that will not profit the man. He thinks it will profit him. He thinks if he consents to this that he will make gain. That we saw in Proverbs where he lurked privately for the blood of the innocent to make gain and consented to all have one purse. You look up our article on one purse. All have one purse. That's mischief. And that mischief will not profit you. 
and it is vanity of vanities. And of course, if you go read our article, all have one purse, what is that? Well, that's socialism. We all have one purse and we empower somebody to redistribute the wealth amongst us that we produce and we all put into the single storehouse, into the single purse. That one purse runs towards evil, runs towards death. It, it is a net where that where the bird, in the sight of the bird, the net is sitting there in the sight of the bird and the bird is still caught. He thinks he can get through the net. <laughs> and, and of course, that's what happens when we go socialism. We're snared again in a net of our own making. Because it is woven out of our vows and our, our oaths and our swears. Uh, yes, yes, Pharaoh, if you give us free bread, we will give you 20% of our labor. Or a portion of our labor. Maybe that you don't put that clause in and maybe you can take more than 20%. Also, this uh, the, the word for labor in verse 8 is uh, it's spelled a little bit different too. It actually has an extra uh, vav, which could be, you know, when you have a vav at the beginning, it may mean just kind of like and. Um, but uh, that that particular word is normally... Uh, if I remember right, uh, it is uh, Yad Gimel uh, An, or An uh, Gimel Yad, and uh, it uh, it means labor, but it means specifically weary or wearisome labor, almost oppressive labor, and so they add an extra you know, memons there so that it's continuous. I mean, and this is, of course, what the bondage of Egypt was. That it, they, they, that 20% became burdensome through crafts of state, through things, you know, rules that were coming down from the Pharaoh. And the people had no protection from those rules because by living in that state of bondage, you are weakened, you are degenerated. By having the choice of how you personally, if you're each kings and queens in your own castle, you still have to have a redistribution of wealth in society, which will come up over and over again, not in those terms, but in other terms in Ecclesiastes, that you will have that redistribution of wealth, but you will have the choice. But when you give the choice to the Pharaoh, then you have less choice. Now he has more choice. If you give that choice to Caesar or your prime minister or your president, he will have more choice. You will have less choice. When you have less choice, as Archibald McLeish says, you become a person, a thing. And, of course, that's the bondage of Egypt. What strengthens you, God gave you the power of choice. He wants you to have the power of choice over all your labors, which uh, these chapters will get into, that God is the capitalist. That he wants you to have the power of choice over your labor. But if you vow to give somebody else that power, so be it. They have that power. If you want to be free, then you have to think differently. And that's what they're telling us here in these chapters. If we go to uh, chapter 2, we will uh, see 
it began, I said in mine heart, again, that's in his heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. So prove, the word prove there is the word uh, test. Uh, normally written naka, which is uh, nun, uh, sumak, uh, hey. Uh, but here we see elef, uh, nun, sumak, uh, kuf, hey. So it's it's spelled quite a bit different. And, uh, but yet it has to do with testing, to assay, to determine. Because now he's looking in his own heart to do this. He's, he's not necessarily listening to that divine spark of revelation. And that's why it is said, this also is vanity. But he is, you know, what makes me happy? What gives me pleasure? Oh, well, that's still vanity. It's, it's going to be empty. It's it's not going to be what you want it to be. And again, he uses that word habel, uh, which is, it's it's just air. It's just breath. And when we look at, at how the spirit is vexed, we'll see that that's what he's talking about. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Well, he, he mentions uh, wine, but there's a lot of things that we can get drunk on. Of course, there's drugs nowadays, but um, all kinds of pleasures we can get drunk on. He said, I made m- me great works. I builded houses. That's another source of pleasure. I planted vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had a great possession of great and small cattle. Above all that were in Jerusalem before me. So he accumulated all this wealth. And he kept accumulating and accumulating all this wealth. But it ends up that that was vanities too. It wasn't all those pleasures that he thought would prove out. Did not prove out. You know, he gathered gold. and, And precious treasures. Uh, of the king. Uh, he got men and women to be singers and delights uh, and musical instruments of all sorts. And of course, we can do the same thing. We can, we can download music all, anytime we want. We can put in, you know, DVDs and, uh, uh, and used to, everybody would listen to CDs. Now, you know, you can put everything on your little, you know, a little chip and listen to all kinds of music. You can have that. You can have all kinds of food. You can have a really nice car. I mean, the um, medium income, actually a poor person today lives better than a lot of kings of the past. He has more options, more things that he could eat. 
Uh, of course, many of those things he could eat are bad for him. But, but he has an awful lot of options these days. Uh, and he doesn't have to work to get them. You know, he can go down to L.A. and live in a tent and get a check somewhere. And and uh, he can get all the pleasure he wants, but it's all vanity. In verse 10, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. So he, he would look at whatever he wanted to look at. He followed his the leading of his own heart. He rejoiced in all my labors. But of course, Solomon, all his labors were not his labors because he was instituting that system of Corby. And that he wasn't planting all those orchards himself. He had other people doing it. He, but he was, but you could, the Pharaoh could say the same thing. That, that uh, all these things uh, were, were, but the, it ends up in verse 11, he says, the vanity and vexation of the spirit. That this was all the vanity and vexation of the spirit. And so what, what is he, why does he keep talking about this vanity and vexation of the spirit? We saw it in verse 11, verse 17. We'll see it in verse 26. This vexation of the spirit, which is from two words, ra'on and ru'ah, which translated vexation of the spirit is grasping for the wind. Can you grasp the wind with your hands? Can, can you possess the wind? Now, the Holy Spirit listed where it wills. So, pleasure did not give him. Riches did not give him. All the things that he could see with his own eye that would give him feelings of pleasure, uh, of the wine, the drunkenness, all these things, they were vexation of the Spirit. They were grasping at wind. They were vanities. They weren't going to give him what he was looking for. And... That is often the case today. So what is the solution? Well, we'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're looking at, we're actually in uh, the second chapter. And uh, we got down, well, let's, let's go back to uh, verse 12. And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. See, there's that reference to madness and folly. So there's two things there. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? Then I saw the wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. In in that uh, verse 13, we see this word excelleth, also translated excellency and profitable. And that's really what it means is advantage and profit. And so what he's saying there in that verse is that this uh, wisdom uh, profiteth folly as far as light profited darkness. So the idea that light profited darkness, light doesn't profit darkness. Light, light destroys darkness, ends darkness. So 
does wisdom profit folly or does wisdom destroy folly? Well, what wisdom are we talking about? Are we talking about his wisdom? His wisdom probably increases folly. <laughs> so, because, and you're going to see this metaphor where he, well, you see it right away in the next verse. In verse 14, the wise man's eye, eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself receiveth also that one event happeneth to them all. So, you know, that's, you know, it rains on the just and unjust. But one turns it to advantage and the other one is destroyed by it. But when he says the wise man's eyes are in his head, well, he's been talking about following his heart, not his head. And then we have to look at the word head. What is he talking about? When you meditate, you're you're looking at your hand and you're seeing it in your head. You're not seeing it in your heart. You're seeing it in your head. And then, of course, the idea is that you're waiting upon the Lord and hear, to hear what the Lord has to say to you, not what your head has to say to you, because in your head is all kinds of ideas on what may make you happy. But many of those things you think will make you happy will either drive you mad or bring you into folly. So, when you begin to understand, you know, Solomon had this Corvee system of statutory bondage that he was putting the people back into, and he was accumulating all kinds of wealth, not just for him, but for everybody. Uh, Jerusalem was prospering, but there's a price to pay that will come down the road, the cause and effect. It will cycle about that when you give everybody, when you make people, force the contributions of the people, you take away their power of choice. They become a part of your wealth. They are now your servants. All the citizens of Egypt were the servants of Pharaoh. And the priests were managing their social safety net through the temples. That's what religion was. So the more you paid into the temple, which was that 20% of your labor, the more wealth they had to redistribute. Now, I'm sure they did a good job at, for a while, but now they have your power of choice on how to do that. Power corrupts. The priesthood becomes corrupt because you have to give to them whether they're doing a good job or not. And that brings corruption because that's that's public religion where the civil authority of the Pharaoh can force the contributions of the people. That Because the people don't have the choice. They have to give that 20%. Now, he can appoint taskmasters who are real nice. Or he can appoint taskmasters who carry spears and swords and guns and, you know, weapons. And they can force and make sure you contribute. And if you don't contribute to the amount that you should, they can take everything away from you. But he's talking about two systems. And one he refers to as the vexation of fools. And the other one will draw you near, which we will see in subsequent chapters. In Romans 2.5 we see, But after thy hardness and 
penitent heart treasureth up unto myself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation and the righteous judgment of God. So, again, we live in a cause and effect universe. The wrath of God is the consequences of going away from the way of God, following your own heart, you know, and the hardness of your own heart, which comes from the fact that you, you know, what softens your heart, where you actually have to sacrifice for the needy of your society, and you have the choice to do so. And he's going to talk about the man who has the power to choose to do so, but chooses to do for himself, to satisfy his own heart, his own desires, and not the desire of God, which the desire of God is that you care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself, that you're a giver of life, not a taker of life. Those are the two commandments that Jesus said were the most important. And what he's talking about, when you forget that, then everything becomes vanity. So in verse 15, Then said I in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, again in his heart, that this is also vanity. So even in his own heart, he could see, that there was a foolishness, that the fool walketh in darkness, that this is foolish. You know, and of course the blind man's always in darkness, and Jesus has a parable about a blind man. If if the blind lead the blind, they both will fall into a ditch. So if you elect foolish leaders, (laughs) they will lead you in the ways of foolishness. They will lead you in the ways of darkness. So in verse 16 he talks about, For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool. Forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise men as the fool. So he says that we're we're not going to remember, we're not going to understand, and we're going to see how he he unveils in this what is the sacrifice of fools, and how it will blind the whole world. It will it will bring them under a strong delusion, and it will be a vexation of the spirit. Now they will have to substitute. Something for the spirit. And they will mistakenly substitute emotion for the spirit of God. And and they will go to churches that well up emotional feelings in them. They'll go to synagogues that make them feel justified. They will go to mosques that will make them think they are righteous. But they will still be performing the sacrifice of fools. And living by what can only be counted as unrighteous. They they will even go to the point of biting one another and in subsequent course be devoured themselves. They will return the whole world to the bondage of Egypt. And of course, if you haven't figured it out yet, they, we already have. So in verse 17, Therefore I hated life 
Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of the spirit. It it is a grasping at air. It's it's not going to satisfy. And he talks again, wrought under the sun, that this is a metaphor for wrought in the worship of God. In the light of day. All the things that we're doing that we think. Well this is partly what the parable of. Or or the statement of Christ. That you're not supposed to be going and doing this up in the front of everything. That seeking the kingdom of God begins in your heart. And in your mind. So that you're seeking the righteousness of God. And repenting, thinking differently. But how do you think? Well, you're going to need God to show you that. And you, you, no matter how you explain it, if people don't want to see it, they won't see it. Verse 18, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. You know, a lot of people want to uh, provide for their kids. So that their kids don't have to work like they had to work. So that that they they want to you know well I you know I had to do this and I had to do that. The thing is, a lot of times you resent having to do it. So now you try to spare your kids having to do it when you don't realize that having to do the work you had to do is what made you stronger. And when you take that away from your children, you make them weaker. And, of course, people who run whole societies know that if we get everybody on legal charity, where they can receive charity, but they don't have to meet moral criteria, we will weaken all of society. And they will not, we will be able to be tyrants over them. We will be able to control them because they will be dependent upon us. That's what LBJ said in his great society. Look that up at Preparing You is that he knew that he would bring the black community into submission of sorts by targeting them with welfare in his great society. His war on, on poverty. That he was going to make them addicted. They were going to drink the wine of his legal charity. And it was going to undermine the family. Of course, the communists thought that was good. You know, that's why Marx was for socialism. Because socialism leads to communism. It's just, you know, communism is just socialism on steroids. So verse 19, And who knoweth whether he shall be wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labors, wherein I have labored, wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. That you, you want to think that you can do it. But we're still dealing with the, the wise man or a fool. Now the, the wise man, well, again, wise in his own eyes. It's not actual the whole truth. Because if you knew the whole truth, you wouldn't go the way that you've been going for the last hundred years in the world today. And the world today would not be on the precipice of economic disaster 
We wouldn't be there. And even if many people went that way, all the people that went the way of Christ and sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded, he commanded his disciples to make the people do that, not for his disciples' sake, but for the people's sake. You know, that that's that's one of the paramount things that the early church did do right. As they organized in these tens, hundreds, and thousands. Small congregations linked together with congregations of ministers. until So that 5,000 people and their families, 5,000 men and their families could sit down and be an absolute organized group. Nobody went hungry. Nobody was shorted. Everybody had enough to share. And everybody was willing to redistribute that wealth amongst themselves so that nobody went hungry. But they had to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands first in order to bring that about. And of course, we see in Acts, Paul is bringing that about as dearths are sweeping across the Roman Empire, shortages of grain, breakdown in the economies, wars and rumors of war, going about where Christians were finding themselves in a shortfall. And they were still taking care of themselves locally, but... People like Paul and, and, and Timothy were bringing aid from people who were in this tens, hundreds, and thousands, the kingdom of God, and they cast their bread upon the waters so that they could take, you know, Galatians could take care of Corinthians, and Corinthians could take care of Syrians, and Syrians could take care of the people at Ephesus because the, the the waves of the dearth came across and there were shortages here and then there were shortages there. And they were able to redistribute wealth through faith, hope, and charity. Through a network of congregations and ministers who were connected because in good times they sat down in these groups and shared. They cast their bread upon the waters. A lot of people have listened to us for years and years and years, but they're still not a part of a congregation. And some of them are a part of a congregation, but their congregation isn't connected to all the other congregations. We do not put a chart up on the Internet so everybody can see where all those connections are. You have to make those connections yourself. You have, the apostles weren't going to say, okay, you ten sit here, and you ten sit over here, and you ten sit over here, and what, you only got nine, hey, you over there, there's eleven in that group, you come over here to this group. No, you have to work it out. But the apostles simply required that people do that. And then, if people had, and then when they started doing what John the Baptist said, that if you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. They had a network of ministers who could do that. They could say, well, we, we, we don't quite have enough over here and we, we need a little bit more over there. And, and they were able to do that because you won't be able to see that in your little group of ten. Isolating yourself off, not becoming a part of a, a larger network. And if you do that, that's foolishness. That, that, you're not going by the wisdom of Christ, you're going by your own wisdom. And you need to repent of that. So we see in, in this verse 18 that he hated all my labors. Did he really hate them? Which I had taken under the sun because 
I should leave it unto a man that shall be after me. Your children need to make their own way. They need to learn the discipline of doing that. And they need to pass that on to their children. Uh, unfortunately, today, a lot of times, children go out of the homes and they go out and they get married and then they get divorced and then they come back and they want to live off of their parents. No, they should they should come back, but to bring and to fatten their parents, to honor their parents. If if they should come back, you know, and that's in God's timing. In verse 21, we see, For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. So what did he just say there? Uh, if we go back to verse 20, Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. Because he should have left some for other people. You We're not to do everything for everybody. Everybody has to do their part. This is one of the things in the social welfare system. A lot of times you need to be, you know, in the, in the welfare of the state. If you say, well, I, I don't have a job. I can't get a job because I'm wearing this dress all the time. And nobody will hire me because they're all a bunch of homophobic bigots. But, uh, so I, but I have no income, so you need to give me free money. And they said, okay, we'll give you free money. You're weakening the poor. You need to say, no, you know, you're, go- you're going to have to get to work. I'm, I'm not feeding you. I'm not, I'm not going to encourage your sloth. I'm going to encourage your effort and your diligence and the things that make a man a man and a woman a woman. And so the same is true of, you know, why are the public schools so bad? Everybody's saying, well, we need to bring competition back into the public schools. And so that when they, in some of the states, they're giving vouchers. So you can take a voucher and you can take it over and you can give it to a private school. I don't encourage that, but there's something that's taking place when they do that. I encourage everybody to homeschool and create your own private schools without the government assistance. But they see something happening. The public schools start getting better because they see... Students are going out of their school and going over to these other places because, but until you created that competition, they weren't going to do it. Competition is good. It, it, it makes us a leaner machine. But he says, for there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, Yet a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. He's going to eat what somebody else produced. And he's okay with that. He doesn't mind eating at the table of strangers and everybody else do the work. And we teach that. We encourage that. That's why you have the homeless. I mean, yeah, a lot of it's the result of mental illness, but a lot of mental illness is the result of living in darkness. 
it will, it will drive you mad. That's why he talks about two things, madness and folly. They follow each other. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. Verse 22, For what hath a man of all his labors and of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun? So we had the vexation of the spirit, but we also have vexation of the heart. For all his days are sorrows and his travails grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Not take rest in the night, not take rest in the darkness. This also is vanity. So he's listing all these things off that are vanity. But if you don't understand, legal charity is vanity. It will have you clutching at the wind and grasping, you know, it, it is going to be a vexation of the heart. You know what will happen if you set up a system of legal charity where everybody can get benefits from the government simply because you have the virtue of being poor with no look at the moral character of your poverty and why you were brought to poverty. You know what's going to happen? You're going to end up with people rioting in the streets, burning down their own neighborhoods and and destroying everything and robbing everybody because... Their conscience are already singed by legal charity. Legal charity destroys society. You could go back to 150 years before Christ. And Plutarch said it. That when people become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, they will degenerate. And they will institute the rule of force and violence until they become perfect savages and burn down their own neighborhoods. What did that? Legal charity. All the problems you're facing today. It's not the WEF, World Economic Forum. It's not the Federal Reserve. It's, it, it's not mongrels in Mongolia or whatever. I don't know. I heard somebody saying, throwing out all kinds of words about, you know, like, you know, almost sounded anti-Semitic. That's not your problem. Your problem is you're not doing what Christ said. That's why you're in the mess that you're in. It's not the World Economic Forum. It's not those guys. Those are tingling symbols. They would have no power whatsoever except for you have been following your own hearts, your own desires, what you want. You you were wealthy and you followed what you wanted. And this is what he's going to be talking about. Because you cut yourself off from the tree of life. Because you're not listening to God. You're not quieting your mind enough to even hear Him. You're following your own desires. And and you cling to people who say, oh, you're saved because you believe in this and you believe in that and you think this and you think that. No. You have to be a doer of the Word. You can't say... You know, I hear Jesus and like what he says. You have to be a doer of the word. Jesus says that. Paul never said anything different. If you take Paul out of context, you can probably create a, you know, a vain doctrine that is not sound doctrine. 
But that isn't the way it works. So like I said in, in verse 11, 17, and 26, uh, we see this vexation of the spirit. But in verse 22, we see this vexation of the heart. The heart seems to lead us into darkness. But often the head is unsatisfactory as well because it is our own imagination. Because we're thinking with the mind of the beast. We're not thinking with the mind of the teacher. And so all becomes folly. All becomes madness. All becomes grasping, you know, where you think, oh, I, that's all. No, you're grasping at air. There is nothing better for a man. There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. But there's more to it than that. And we'll have to talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. So come right back. So welcome back. So in this uh, chapter 2, we're looking at this. Uh, this also is a vanity and a great evil. He adds this and a great evil when he's talking about labor. A man's labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. In other words, you didn't labor, but you still get a reward. You you get you get resources from others who did labor for you. He says this also is a vanity and a great evil, and it's a great evil because it will destroy you, it will weaken you. You know, if if you do that, you know, you'll end up going from. All the people in your society, in your community, having uh, two parents in the household, you know, maybe one to three percent of the families have one parent, and usually because of death, somebody died. And you will go to having 60, 70 percent of your households having a single parent. You will destroy the family. Because you're eating that which you did not produce. The welfare and government subsidies has destroyed the black family. Reparations will nail their coffin shut. Yet people clamor for it every day. Because they themselves live in darkness. Because they think they are entitled. Because they blame the dead. They, they, they blame the living for the actions of the dead. If you can blame the living for the actions of the dead, then I can blame you for the actions of your ancestors. And it was their ancestors that sold them into slavery to begin with. So, you know, like, well, you know, there's a net, all is vanity. It's, it's nonsense. So, eventually we have to get to the solution. 
But I know in in the in the next chapter that we're going to see that God is a capitalist. But there's pretty much a, a clear hint of that here in this chapter. So if you go down to verse 24 in this chapter 2, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. You're supposed to be eating and drinking what you produce, not what somebody else produces, because that would, we just saw that that was evil. That was a great evil. But if you're enjoying what you produce, that's a good thing. But that's not standalone. There, there has to be more to it to keep things good and on the straight and narrow. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. God gave you your labor. He endowed you with the right to work, to apply yourself, to apply your brain, to apply your 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 muscles, your your back, your your time. God gave you that time. And he gave it to you. And he wants you to use it to the best of your ability. He wants you to be fruitful and multiply. Multiply the number of trees you have, the number of, uh, you know, your garden spaces, that your house, put on extra rooms so you can take in guests. He wants you to do all that stuff. But you have to do it according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can't live in darkness and know what that Holy Spirit is all about. So verse 25, For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? He could eat all he wanted. He was wealthy. For God giveth to a man that is good in the sight of wisdom and knowledge and joy. But the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up. So now the sinner's got stuff too. But he's got it to heap up. That he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of the spirit. Not just of the head, but of the spirit. So now we're, we can go to uh, chapter 3. And this, all these chapters... None of these chapters are really standalone. Because he gives you little glimpses from different angles. He's walking around the problem that all is vanity. Something's not vanity. But vanities of vanities, all that is vanity. It doesn't mean everything is vanity. It means that all the vanities of vanities, because that word all really isn't in there in the text. They just... They put it in the English translation. But all these empty things that don't give life, they give pleasure, they give you personal wealth so you got stacks of gold and silver somewhere. But it doesn't give you life. So he begins this third chapter, which to everything there is a season and a time, to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, 
A time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose and a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend, a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? So all of a sudden there's this other line. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? So you do all these things. Where is the profit? Where is the advantage? You know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. One says the result is travail and the other one says it is, it is a blessing. How do we get to the profit? How do we get to the turn the rain into a blessing? Well, in verse 10, he says, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the Son of Man to be exercised in it. So here's this word exercise, which we saw back there in verse 4. I didn't put the... It's from the word ana, which uh, is an interesting word in itself, and there's other words spelled exactly the same. Uh, it's uh, They think it's possibly from a word that means to answer, to respond, to testify, to speak. It's defined to be occupied, to be busied with something. That's the definition of it. But it's often translated afflict. It's also translated humble. Eleven times. And force five times. And exercised twice. It's even translated sing. Now sometimes these varying translations are from the fact that they add extra letters in the context. So what does it essentially mean? You know, it has the definition of occupied or, or be busied with something, but it also has the de- definition of afflict or oppress or humble or be afflicted. And of course, we were just getting on this topic because we're asking the question, how does the rain become a blessing to one and a travail to another? So how, how does that come about? So exercise, and you know, and the commentaries seem to have some real difficulty. I read a lot of the commentaries on this particular verse, and although there are other verses with similar words in it. But uh, they're talking about this word as meaning punishment, or to oppress. Or, but is it a gift? Is it a blessing? Call, uh, why... Did he say just recently before this chapter that you were not to do all the work for everybody else? You were to leave some of the work for others. You you weren't to make it too easy on everybody. You know, Rothschild, he used to buy, make his kids eat, uh, you know, wear hand-me-down clothes. 
He didn't want to spoil them. Oh, did I say Rothschild? Uh, Rockefeller. Uh, Rockefeller, you know, the, the, the senior, senior Rockefeller. He was very aware of the fact that his kids had to learn to do for themselves. And they, they weren't going to get everything for free. And everything was going to come easy. That's a bad thing to do to people. Legal, that's one of the, the horrible things about legal charity. The other thing is that it's usually a covetous practice. If a rich man is handing out charity because he's rich, that's how they went into bondage to begin with. The Pharaoh had put up all these grain storages and he was, he was very wealthy so he had it to share with. After that, the grain storage was replaced by taxation. Now it became legal charity. It wasn't, and it really was a form of legal charity even with the Pharaoh because when you ran out of money, he wasn't going to sell you anymore. He didn't, he didn't give you the grain. He says, you now you have, I will give you the grain if you promise to give me a portion of your labor. And of course he needed to do that because he needed to bring Israel into the bondage of Egypt because that's what they deserve because they would not hear the anguished cries of their brother. And that's why the whole world has gone into bondage again. It isn't because of the WEF, like I just said. It's because you don't take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And you don't take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands for a lot of reasons. Maybe nobody told you. Nobody said it, but I mean, it's in the text. It's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's in history. But maybe you don't have any remembrance of that. But the teacher does. And he's trying to write it on your hearts and your minds that you need to care about the congregations you don't even know. And the only way you can do that is you gather in a network. You connect one with another. And you make a record of that connection so that you, lest you forget. And and that is the plan. So, the sons of men to be exercised in it means to be occupied in it. Occupied in what? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Well, it's actually, the travail is not a punishment. The bondage of Egypt was not a punishment for what they did to their brother. It was to exercise them of this sin of not hearing the anguish of their brother. And Reuben saw it first. This has come upon us that we're going into the bondage of Egypt. We have to make this deal where we give up a portion of our labor in order to survive. We have to sell ourselves servants in this core V system of statutory labor. Because we would not hear the anguished cries of our brothers. The only way to get out of such a system is to start to hear the anguished cries of your brothers. Whether they're in your congregation or one on the other side of the nation. And the only way to do that is to form a network. Because you won't hear it otherwise. You know how many people have lost their businesses, lost their savings, lost their jobs. How many people have lost sons? I know people who who committed suicide during the shutdowns. They weren't killed by COVID. 
They were killed by the shutdowns. And nobody had any defense against the shutdowns because you weren't in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You have no defense against the World Economic Forum collapsing the economy. You have no defense against that. Oh, you can store up some bacon and beans and stuff or maybe beef and beans if you don't want to eat bacon. <laughs> you you can do that. But unless you have it, if you're seeking the kingdom, you're not just seeking the congregation. You're seeking the kingdom. A network of congregations where people are learning what it means to care about others as much as they care about themselves. Verse 11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work of that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them but for man to rejoice and to do good in his life. There is no good in you except to do good for others. The modern religionists say, oh, you don't have to be good anymore. You don't have to do, you just have to believe. If you're not desiring to do good, you don't believe. Because that is what belief will make in your heart. Christ is not in you if you're not here to sacrifice for people you don't even know. Christ was willing to sacrifice for the whole world. Are you willing to sacrifice for the whole world? No, I just want to sacrifice for my little congregation over here in Poughkeepsie. Because we, we like to pat each other on the back because we're all believers. No, you're not. Now, verse 13. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. We are endowed by our Creator with a right to our labor. But we can sell ourselves through vows and covetousness and become merchandise and human resources of another. And if you do, and you owe the tax, pay the tax. But repent. Think differently. And that's what he's trying to tell you. And seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because there is no good but to do good for the life of others. Now, doing good doesn't mean just giving everything to everybody. Everything they want. You have to give in a way that strengthens the poor. Verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it. That Men should fear before him. Okay. That is telling you all kinds of stuff. Well, let's read 15. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Oh, my goodness. What did he just say? <laughs> okay. When you were in the bondage of Egypt, now you're in the bondage of Egypt again, but when the Israelites were in the bondage of Egypt, they couldn't get out on their own. I mean, they could run across the desert. Nobody was, they didn't have chains on them. 
probably nobody's unless they stole when they ran across the desert they could run across the desert I'm sure some Israelites got jobs on ships that came in for grain in Egypt and went out with those ships and ended up living in Spain or somewhere else but as a people they couldn't go and it was a miraculous journey when they did go but then they were fair game for everybody. Amalek, Malachites, and even for Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh came against them to get all the wealth and riches that they had. They were not ready for Pharaoh to come against them. They couldn't stop Pharaoh. They didn't have to. They couldn't part the Red Sea, but they didn't have to. Because they had started to learn to care about their neighbor as much as they cared about themselves. They were now walking towards the light, if not in the light. Whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. So God set them free by agreement with the Pharaoh. They were now moving under the protection of God. All the books, when I wrote Covenants of the Gods... Everybody says, does this work? I said, I couldn't believe the question. I thought, like, they're not even hearing what this book is about. This book is about getting you down on the shores of the Red Sea. With all the armies of the Pharaoh coming down on you with everything they got. That's what that book is about. Of course, there's no legal advice in that book. It's just telling you how you got into the bondage of Egypt. Fifteen different ways to servitude. <laughs> so, and it's telling you that. It gives you some hints along the way. But if you actually seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be down on the shores of the Red Sea, with the sea at your back and all the armies of the Pharaoh coming down, and nothing between you and them but the power of God. And that is the song of Moses. That's what he was singing. We don't have to defeat the Pharaoh. We don't have to insurrect against anybody. We have to do what is right. The the enemy is us. It is within us. Because we are not humble enough to do what Christ said to do. Which is very simple. Gather together. And that's you know, as we said at the beginning of this, back there, the teacher is the gatherer. And Christ said to gather. To gather in a particular way. To give life. To sacrifice. To forgive. you got to have people around you, you know, so that if they step on your toes, you can forgive them. You have to have people around you that if they step on your toes and you say you forgive them, now you have to prove it by caring about them as much as you care about yourself. As much You have to care about their toes as much as you care about your own toes. And not just love those who love you in your little congregation, but love those that you don't even know. Because you enslaved, and your parents enslaved those they didn't know. Now you have to free those you didn't even know and you have to secure their freedom. And if you are willing to do that and hear their cries and you won't hear their cries unless you have a network of voices where you got you got 
ten congregations and they have a minister. And then you have, uh, each of them has a minister and each of those ministers gather together in groups of ten, etc., etc. And so that if somebody's having trouble over here, you can hear about it. Because you have an actual organism called the church. It's not, it doesn't have any central leader. You're the leader of what you choose to do. But one of the things you must choose to do is hear the cries of others. And you can't do that unless you create a network. You can't call a thousand people every night and say, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, and you need to create actual physical contacts with these people, not dependent upon the internet, not dependent upon podcasts, not dependent upon uh, telephones, but dependent upon a network of people who knows and knows and knows and knows and cares and cares and cares and cares. But in those verses 13, 14, and 15, it's very clear that God is the capitalist. He wants you in charge of your labor. And if you're not in charge of your labor, if you've gone back into the captivity of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, then you, it's because of the way you were thinking. It's not because of what they were doing. It's because of what you were not doing, chances are. And you were not doing it because you weren't thinking like Christ, who didn't come to be saved or to satisfy his own lust. Because that's all vanity. But he came to lay down his life for others. Do you gather together for that purpose? Or do you just gather together for the church that makes you feel good? Feel righteous. You know, like I pointed out uh, recently that uh, I think we're out of time here. Uh, yeah, we, we I will have to finish this in the afternoon show. And then we'll talk about dust to dust. But until then... Gather on the network at Preparing You and it's holychurch.org. And uh, come September, 1st of September, we're going to have a Burning Bush Festival again. So, be there. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www dot his holy church dot net